All right, we're going to turn it over to Father Larry. I'm going to pray, and then uh, Father Larry's going to come and teach us uh, tonight, and we've been so blessed. My wife comes home and tells me how good, uh, you know, when I don't come, he's, how good Father Larry is. Oh, and, 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 and he looks so handsome, and, and the cologne, I mean, this goes on and on. So after this series, I don't think he's going to be doing much around here. <laughs> no, it's been so wonderful. And Lord, we're so grateful for Father Larry and for Beth and their family and uh, Lord, people who love you. And I thank you that when we hear him, whether it's here or on the videos, Lord, we see someone who loves your word, loves your people, and uh, is so competent in his sharing and teaching. So would you continue to bless him? Uh, thank you for his humility, for his competence, uh, and for his experience, Lord, in these things, and and even a willingness to to realize that people disagree about some of this stuff. And uh, but what's most important, Lord, in uh, in teaching uh, your word and moving forward, and and, and letting us understand better uh, from how he understands it, and uh, and yet with such grace about it. So, Lord, continue to bless and use him. We're so thankful for him. So strengthen him, Lord. We ask in the most precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good evening. That's a, that's a wonderful testimony, Tommy. I'm eager to hear more about that. Well, it's such a joy to have Archbishop Larkin and his wife Jillian, though you call her Jill. Is that right? I've seen you on Facebook. This is the first time to meet you in person. To have them here from England, I, I'm looking forward to next week uh, very much. All right, um, we're going to continue. This is our sixth installment now on this series of lectures on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. And last week we began dealing specifically with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, particularly uh, with regard to tongues. And uh, as I stated last week, this is not a subject. Uh, without controversy. Uh, it needn't be controversial, but it often is. And, and there are reasons for that. Uh, theological perspectives, certainly, traditions, uh, but also those who uh, have experienced this or, or uh, uh, say that they have, have sometimes participated uh, in these gifts in a fashion that... Uh, created questions and concerns that were answered poorly. And I think uh, for many, unfortunately, uh, what Paul mandated with regard, especially to tongues, has often been ignored. Uh, the vocal gifts, among them tongues, uh, are, because of their subjective nature, are, uh, they give themselves over easily to abuses. And so Paul urged, urged the church and urges us through those writings to maintain a very objective environment, an environment in which we are especially attentive to matters of order and decorum. And, and so as a consequence of failing to do that, the matter of tongues has become more controversial perhaps than it might have been. And so we're going to work through this very carefully. And I want you to bear in mind, however, that um, uh, what I'm saying, I'm expressing my opinion. I believe it's an informed opinion. I've 
been working through this particular subject carefully for more than 30 years. Uh, I, I, I believe it is a, a critical subject, important to the lives of believers, uh, but because so much controversy has surrounded it, and because of my own personal experience, as I noted last week, I was not raised as a Pentecostal, but I was raised around Pentecostalism. In fact, when I went to church, uh, that was my exposure by and large, and it was a classic Pentecostal denomination, the Church of God, uh, which is headquartered out of Cleveland, Tennessee. And uh, I did... I did encounter there a real passion for Jesus, a real undeniable love for Jesus. And I so uh, enjoyed that. I lapped it up. I was not as impressed with the um, theological depth of some of the messages which I heard. That was probably because of where I was. I've heard any number of Pentecostal preachers and from that particular denomination who, who spoke uh, in a fashion that was theologically and intellectually sound and robust. But that was my exposure at the time. But most of all, I experienced uh, a sort of raw emotionalism that left me feeling violated and frightened. And so I, I tended to view it with something of a jaundiced eye. My grandparents migrated from that classic Pentecostal denomination into the charismatic movement when I was about 15 years old. And that occurred uh, because of their involvement over time in an organization called Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, which really became a platform for many charismatic speakers within the mainline churches. And its exposure increased dramatically Uh, through that venue, and my grandparents became involved in that. My grandfather was a businessman, and uh, it challenged a lot of their theology, their Pentecostal theology, a lot of their traditions, but they persisted in it because they sensed something of God there. And they began to examine what they were being taught, and they compared it with what they had been taught previously and realized that... uh, What they were now learning seemed to comport more solidly with what the Bible seemed to be saying than what they had experienced in the Pentecostal movement, and they finally made that transition fully. And I was suddenly exposed to the charismatic movement through their involvement, and for me, it was like someone had opened up a window and a fresh wind blew through. It was extraordinary. My first encounter was through the music, and my grandmother had an 8-track, that dates me, (laughs) playing in the car, and I had never heard this sort of music. And, and I asked her, please, please let me stay in here. We'd arrived at her home. And I said, please allow me to stay in here. I want to continue listening to this. And it, was, it so touched me. And then I began attending their church. And it was extraordinary. I could sense the presence of Jesus when I passed through the doors. There was a joy. There was a gladness that was palpable. It was not ginned up. It was there by virtue of the presence of Jesus. And the teaching was, with, was I say without emotion, I mean, uh, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't absent emotion, but that wasn't characteristic of the teaching. It was uh, replete with scriptures. Every service was a Bible drill. And it was wonderful. I grew so much 
and my heart finally found a home. Um, as I continued in those circles, Harold Bredesen, who, who was a pioneer in the charismatic movement, he was a third-generation Lutheran pastor who had received the baptism in 1947. He and Gene Stone actually coined the phrase charismatic movement. He became my mentor. Um, perhaps sometime I'll share that. It's a rather unique story. And Justice Duplessy, who came from the opposite side of the issue, but was also a real pioneer in the charismatic movement, he and his brother David. And those two streams began to flow into my life, and I began to examine the scriptures carefully regarding this matter. As I said, for more than 30 years now. So I'm not sharing something with you flippantly. My approach hasn't been at all casual. So I would like you to give some weight to my opinion, but bear in mind, it is just that. It is my opinion. It may conflict with your own. What do you do in, in, in such a case? I'm a, I, I think I'm a fairly nice guy. I seem like a nice guy at least, don't I? So you might be tempted to say, well, you know, Larry's a nice guy. I don't think he would share anything in error. Father Ron likes my cologne. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily suggest my theology of sound. You're very earnest, though, Larry. I am, I think. But that, that is, that's no indication that my theology is sound or correct. In the final analysis, the responsibility belongs to you. To listen, to, to come with an open mind. The Berean believers are really, they're our model. They were more noble, uh, Luke wrote, than those in Thessalonica because they did what? They came with an open mind. Your theology may be challenged by what I'm saying. And we all have a theology, don't we? Whether we've articulated or not, we all have a foundational set of beliefs about God. And what I'm saying may challenge your theology. It may challenge your traditions. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Come with an open mind. Give me a hearing. And you have been doing that, and I applaud you for that. Then examine what I'm saying against Scripture. That's your metric. How does it comport with the full counsel of God's Word? Is Larry properly contextualizing what he's, what he's saying? And if you feel that it doesn't, be shocked, Frank. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you feel that it doesn't, then I'm going to ask you to tell me that. If you say, Larry, I've looked at this carefully and I really don't agree, I am not going to go, oh, really? This should be good. Please enlighten me. That's not going to be my response. Uh, I'm probably not going to cheer, but I'm going to say, well, I, I really want to hear that. And when I say that, I really mean that. I want to hear it. I will approach what you have to say in the same fashion I'm asking you to approach what I'm saying. I'll approach it with an open mind. So, well, I haven't been studying it for 30 years. That's okay. May you, maybe you've just been studying it for a few weeks since we've been in this uh, series of lessons. That's okay. Share with me the conclusions you've arrived at. Share with me your concerns. 
and we will work through that together. And, and at, at the end of that effort, I may discover that you've stumbled upon something that's really true, and I need to adjust what I believe. Or vice versa, you may, you may discover, oh, I see that a little differently now, and that was helpful. Um, at worst, I may continue to believe what I believe, and you may believe what you believe. We will be in disagreement, but we will agree to disagree because this isn't salvific. Our, our salvation does not hinge on this idea. As I said last week, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on or sacrifice a relationship on. So if we disagree, we disagree. But I want you to listen, give it a fair hearing, and uh, you may discover something that, is, that really enhances uh, your walk with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's what all of this is, is about. Our grand cause is the same as the Apostle Paul's. He said, I'm giving up everything that I may know him. That is our great goal, is to know him. I don't care to just know about him. I don't care to have accumulated um, a great deal of knowledge that is detached from knowing him. I don't want to become a doctrinaire. I want the doctrine that I've embraced to lead me into intimacy with Jesus. God created man, and he walked with him in the cool of the day. That was his purpose in creating man, that we might have fellowship with him. And so we are, we are still engaged because of, of Christ's redemptive work on Calvary in that same uh, glorious effort now, just to walk with God, to enjoy him, and to serve others. So that's enough preface. I've eaten up uh, even more time now. <laughs> we'll, try to, uh, we'll try to work through this. Uh, I may not be able to uh, wrap it up tonight. We will see. Uh, turn, let's begin at John 14. As I said, I want to do a brief recap. I've had uh, some people say to me, this has been so helpful, but I, I would love to hear some of this again. And of course, it's on the video, but I think what they meant was I'd like you to just sort of uh, expand on it a little more, synthesize some of it a, a little more completely. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And then uh, 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 Archbishop Larkin will be ministering here next Thursday, as, as uh, Father Ron said. The following week, I have a special uh, service planned here for that night. And uh, so I think it'll be a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, but I wanted, before we uh, go into that, I wanted to do a brief recap, if that's possible. All right, John, the 14th chapter, beginning with uh, verse 16. I got a new Bible a couple of months ago, and uh, it's larger print. I got it just for preaching. <laughs> And I'm still working through it. It's funny how you get a new Bible. You don't turn to things quite so quickly. All right, let's begin with verse 16. Father, we uh, welcome you here tonight. We so yearn for your presence and for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that he might lead us into truth and understanding. That tonight, we uh, might uh, not simply know more about you, but that we might know you better. We pray for real encounter 
with Jesus Christ tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 14, verse 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. Now, how was he with them? No, remember now, this is before... Uh, the um, th this is before Christ's uh, sacrifice. This is before his death, burial, and resurrection. He was with them as as he moved um, among mankind. But especially now, remember when Jesus was baptized, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a bodily dove. Remember that. And so the Holy Spirit is also with them in a very real way in the person of Jesus Christ and then he says and he will be in you if they caught that that must have been puzzling and shocking what could he possibly mean verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you and I remember earlier he's explained to them that he would he was going to leave he was going to prepare a place for us in heaven. And the Holy Spirit, we now learn, is coming to prepare a place in us for him. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the disciples must have been alarmed when they learned that Jesus was going away. Alarmed and saddened. And so this would have been very meaningful to the disciples, but it ought to be so meaningful to us. I'm sure you've wondered, like me, what it must have been like to walk with Jesus as one of the disciples did. What a joy that must have been. But also the idea, as they did, at any time you could simply turn to Jesus if you required counsel or if you had a question. And Jesus is explaining to them, I, I'm going away but I am coming back to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you alone. I am coming to you again. How? After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Let's skip ahead to um, uh, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, let's skip ahead, please, to the 16th chapter. How is he going to be with them? John 16, uh, let's, let's turn to uh, verse 12, or begin with verse 12, rather. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They couldn't receive them. They didn't have the capacity to comprehend or to appreciate spiritual reality or spiritual truth. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus is coming to us again in the person of the Holy Spirit, much as God came to man in Christ. You remember Matthew uh, 1.23. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. So God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, flip back with me to John the 14th chapter, please. And you'll see that uh, uh, Thomas, verse 5, he said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet... You have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me hath seen the Father. So in very much the same way that God comes to us in the person of Jesus, Jesus has explained to his disciples, I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said something very similar to what he noted about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at, uh, let's look at verse 5. Um, verse 10, do you, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative. And that's precisely what he said of the Holy Spirit, that how the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but he will speak those things that belong to Jesus, and in effect reveal to us Jesus himself. Now, that is, that is all bound up in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In, in Luke, the let's turn please over to Luke, the 24th chapter. Luke 24, verse 50 we read, and he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. This was, uh, uh, this is marking his ascension. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping, returned to, root, to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, why do you suppose they were able to observe his ascension? his departure from them, and yet return to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus was leaving, was carried out of their midst. Gravity lost its hold on him, and he began to rise toward heaven and ascended out of their sight. And yet they returned to Jerusalem with joy. During the 40 days that he was sharing with them, surely they began to comprehend what this coming of the Holy Spirit would hold for them, that in fact Jesus was, though he had departed, he would come to them once again in the Holy Spirit, just as God had come to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's go to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Now remember, Acts 
Luke wrote, obviously, the book which bears his name, but he also is the author of uh, what we now call the Acts of the Apostle, which I think it was uh, Irenaeus, Irenaeus who, who actually referred um, to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles in the second century. Um, and so it, it stuck. But uh, Luke, who was not one of the apostles, obviously, was a Gentile and a physician and a traveling companion uh, of Paul during a, a number of his uh, missionary journeys and finally with him on his journey to Rome, wrote uh, the book of Acts as well. And so remember his words, uh, from, uh, th which we just read in Luke uh, 24, 50 through 53. And let's begin with verse 1 of Acts 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be what? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So again, this promise of the Holy Spirit, he is now, he is, he is now time stamping. This promise is going to be fulfilled. I am going to return to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to happen shortly, in only a few days. Now this word baptism, I want you to um, <clears throat> consider what it, what it really is. Now he said, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Had they received the Holy Spirit? By this, uh, by this juncture, yes. They had received the Holy Spirit. They were regenerate. The Holy Spirit, we, we declared in the Nicene Creed each week, the Holy Spirit who is the, what? The Lord and giver of life. Regeneration occurs through the personal work of the Holy Spirit. We were dead in sins, Ephesians 2, 1, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17 explains that um, when we receive by faith Jesus Christ as Lord, His Holy Spirit enters our lives and does something dramatic. We are reborn, we are regenerated, refashioned, we become, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That happened to the disciples in John the 20th chapter. Just flip back a few pages to John 20. Uh, verse 22, Jesus has, uh, obviously he has risen now, and he is <clears throat> appearing to the disciples. Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. That 
same miracle, that same transmission occurs in our lives when we breathe out those words from our mouth, declared by faith from our hearts that Jesus is Lord. And this breath of the Holy Spirit enters our life, and we become regenerate. So in Acts, the first chapter, he is, he is, dis, he is talking with regenerate men, with new creations, with men and women who've been born again. And yet he says there's something more with regard to the Holy Spirit. There is some experience with him subsequent to regeneration, subsequent to being born again. There's something more, and he calls it a baptism. What is a baptism? Well, it, the word means to plunge, literally. It's baptizo. It means to plunge, to be drenched, to be soaked. So he breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So I That's not absorbent at all. Let's pretend this absorbs some water and it's not all over. Oh my gosh. Looks as if I wet myself here. <laughs> Um, let's edit that out. Um, all right, so this is sort of wet. It's damp, okay? It has water in it. I'm going to baptize it. I'm going to plunge it into the water where, of course, for some reason, it is going to remain dry. This is how you baptize people who are, you're not quite convinced of their salvation. You just hold them under. Now, you see, what's it doing? It's dripping. It's soaked. It is drenched. The, it's a little messier than I anticipated. The, um, boy, for someone who's OCD, this is a nightmare. Um, Jesus is saying, you have, <laughs> my hands are wet, you have received the Holy Spirit, but now he's speaking of an event in which they will become drenched with. They're going to be plunged into the Holy Spirit. They're going to become saturated, suffused with the Holy Spirit. That's what this baptism will accomplish. They will have more of the Holy Spirit, but more to the point, the Holy Spirit will have more of them. How many of you would like to be more spiritual? How many of you think if you were more spiritual, you would sin less? That temptation would be less of a temptation? And so people often think, if I could just be more holy, if I could lead a more godly life, I would, by virtue of that, become a more spiritual man or woman. Paul in Ephesians 5 really dispels that notion. He said, if you will uh, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh so our goal our aim must be to become more spiritual to develop spiritually in order to overcome the flesh what does that mean well paul said in romans 7 he said you know when i sin it's not me but sin in me is he attempting to elude responsibility for sinning 
No, it would be like me driving home if I was exceeding the speed limit and a police officer pulled me over and I tried to convince him that I should not be ticketed because there is no way that, let's say I was doing 45 and a 30. I would try to convince him vainly that I could not possibly run 45 miles an hour. On my best day, I might do five or six miles an hour. Maybe a little faster, I'm not sure. But no way would I possibly be able to run 45 miles an hour. He'd say, sir, I'm, I'm ticketing you because you're responsible for the behavior of this vehicle. Your choices dictate its behavior. So Paul is not attempting to elude it, but he is identifying this critical delineation. By acknowledging that it's not him, but sin in him, he is able to continue to agree with what God declares about him. Which is what? He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And by embracing that truth and holding fast to it, an opportunity is provided for God's grace to flood his life and overwhelm and overcome the weaknesses that are in him and allowing him eventually to move beyond them. It's imperative that we remain in agreement with what God declares about us even when our behavior suggests for a moment that uh, this other might be so. When our behavior seems to give credence to the lies of the accuser of the brethren, we have an important choice to make. Do I believe the lie or do I continue to believe the truth? Let God be true and every man a liar. So Paul is, is simply... Uh, urging us to become more spiritual, spiritually empowered in order that the weakness that's in our flesh can be overcome. Today I went to the doctor, I, you know, I had influenza strain A, I guess, several weeks ago, and I haven't been that ill in many years, but I was in bed for a week with a, with a temperature, a high temperature. And uh, I had mononucleosis when I was a child, I think 12 or 13 years old. I had a fairly severe case. And uh, the doctor asked me today, have you ever had mononucleosis? I said, yes. She said, well, I'm going to test you. Uh, we've taken blood. We're going to run a test on this because I think it may have reactivated. It's apparently a fairly opportunistic virus that just stays with you. And when you become particularly weak, it, it uh, springs into action. <laughs> Um, so no, no, no kissing, Beth, I'm sorry, at least until the tests come back. Um, sin is like that. It's in our flesh. It is a residue of that fallen nature that was ours before Christ. But by remaining strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, suddenly we find that this revived spirituality allows us to easily overcome the sin which is in our flesh. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit is this infusing of our lives with the Holy Spirit. We become saturated with Him. Now, the interesting thing is, we leak. So these, uh, oh, yeah. um, these, these disciples, in fact, let's look at, I, we won't take the time, well, I guess we will. Okay. If we don't finish, we don't finish. Um, or we could stay here until 10 o'clock. No, okay. Um, so when they had come together, verse... Uh, oh, actually, he tells them, look, you need 
to, uh, you, you need this. Don't leave Jerusalem without it. Verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking under the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And as I remarked a few weeks ago, I think Miriam said, gee, that was rude. Um, if you and I were witnessing this miracle, this extraordinary event, Jesus ascending into heaven, a cloud of glory receiving him, not only would we be moved because we so love him and he's departing, but the wonder of what we were beholding, would, we would be caught up in that moment. And suddenly two angels appear and say, uh, what are you doing? I'm watching Jesus ascend into heaven. Never seen this before. But they said, hey, 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 he's coming back. Just like he's leaving, he's coming back. And he gave you a mandate to preach the gospel to every creature. Go to Jerusalem and wait for this endowment of power. And off they went. In fact, Luke tells us that they returned with great joy. And so here they are, verse 1 of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews from uh, the diaspora gathered there from many nations, and in short, they each heard the praises of God in their own language, suggesting either an auditory miracle, that what they were, what the, what the, the tongues which were being uttered by the, uh, those gathered there, those 120, were somehow being translated into known languages within the ears of the hearer, or there was a miracle flowing from their mouths. They were, they were declaring the praises of God in a tongue they had never learned. They were speaking a language they'd never been trained in. Either way, a miracle was happening. And uh, Peter begins to proclaim to them the nature of this miracle. And that day, 3,000 people uh, were born again. But I want you to note that in um, chapter 4, this same group, except that it has uh, been being added to day by day, uh, the church had continued to grow. Verse, uh, chapter 4, let's turn to verse 29. Now, you recall that Peter and John... Uh, who really, you, we, the disciples, the 11 remaining disciples are listed in Acts 1. John is referred to here in the first couple of chapters with regard to Peter, but largely the first eight chapters deal with the Apostle Peter and the balance with uh, Apostle, the Apostle Paul's journeys. Um, but here we see uh, Peter and John together. Remember, they prayed for a man at the gate called Beautiful. He was healed. Um, a great crowd gathered. They began to preach in Solomon's what is called Solomon's Porch, and, and then the, uh, uh, the temple guards came and arrested them, and they were brought before the council, and uh, the, the council uh, sent them away, commanding them not to preach in the name of Jesus. They returned to their company, and, and they begin to pray. Verse uh, 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were 
once again all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Here they are being filled again. Turn with me to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Paul urges us, commands us, not to be drunk with wine. Verse uh, 18. But to be filled with the Spirit. Now, these two are presented in juxtaposition uh, with each other because Paul is suggesting, I think, that uh, in the very same fashion that, that we can fall under the influence of alcohol and it begins to... Uh, affect our judgment, our perceptions. We can so live under the influence of the Holy Spirit that our opinions, our judgments, and our lives are completely impacted by that influence. So he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there is a, in fact, in, in the Greek, the language would, uh, a, a more accurate translation would read be being filled. It is an ongoing, uh, present tense, persistent effort. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we jokingly say that's because we leak, but we do. But the thing that I find so intriguing about it is it also suggests that God is carefully protecting and preserving our autonomy. To be filled with the Spirit is to fall under His influence. And we are not, we are not robots. We're not automatons. God doesn't look for men and women that He can control apart from their will. He's looking for men and women who joyfully, gladly, willingly submit to His will and wish to be led by Him. Not controlled by Him, but led by Him, empowered by Him. And so, we must constantly, in effect, give permission to God the Holy Spirit to enjoy such, such influence in our lives. God guards protects our autonomy. To violate it would be to somehow alter what we are as humans and our unique relationship with God would suddenly dissolve. How can you love somebody that must love you? You know, they're talking about robots with artificial intelligence. Imagine if you could construct the perfect spouse. I have mine and she's real. Imagine if you could... Did I just score a brownie point, darling? Um, imagine if you could construct the, the perfect spouse. At the end of the day, you'd still have to program that spouse to love you. And it would only be an approximate love. It would be a love shown through actions that you've programmed it to, uh, to do through words you've programmed it to say. It wouldn't really be love, would it? What's absent from that scenario that would allow that to actually be love? Well, free will. Somebody that understands uh, the proposition, I love you. I wish to be loved by you. And then willingly, and it willingly returns that love, but also has the capacity to do that. That would be shattered if our autonomy were somehow impinged upon. And so this infilling has to occur throughout the whole of our lives. It is a daily um, invitation to God. This, this cruciform God who so loves us 
is almighty, all-powerful, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, stands at the door of our hearts, humbly, meekly, knocking. He wants to come in. To do what? To commune with us, to have sup, to, to sup with us and we with him. That is uh, the, the yearning of God, and yet he protects our autonomy. And so this invitation, we extend daily. How are we filled with the Holy Spirit? I want you to note uh, his first, uh, there are three sets of, uh, or there are three, more or less, three actions that catalyze this and the first is speaking to yourselves in what psalms hymns and songs of the spirit spiritual songs whatever could that mean well let's look at first corinthians 14 where I, I promise we're closing in just a moment i i, I just need to get this far first uh, corinthians 14 Paul, uh, now last week we spent a good deal of time, and I guess uh, when we return here next, we'll continue this recap and talk about 1 Corinthians 12, uh, because there Paul very carefully notes that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are regulated by their purpose, by their effect. And there is a, a gift of the Spirit referred to as tongues, which exists for the, the edification of the body. And it is always tethered to interpretation of tongues. They are companion gifts, and they are inextricably linked. So much so that Paul says, if an interpreter isn't present, you dare not speak out in an unknown tongue in the public assembly. But he also explains, apparently, there is a private devotional gift. It does not exist for the edification of the body. It exists for our own personal, private edification. In Jude 20, we, we looked at last week, we'll close with that, stresses the use of that particular devotional gift. It has a different purpose. Its effect is different. It's not public edification. It is private. And so when Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, asks the question rhetorically, do all speak with tongues? He is referring to that public uh, that gift of the Spirit which operates in public for the edification of the body. And, and so it is tethered to, do all speak with tongues, do all what? The next question, do all interpret? So they exist there, uh, tethered together. He's obviously making reference to that. So we, we tried to, I tried to deal last week with that question because it, it, people have struggled with that. Well, obviously the answer to that question is no, all do not speak with tongues, but the context in which he poses that question is critical to understanding what he's actually saying. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, he is addressing this other administration of the Holy Spirit, this gift of tongues, which exists not for public edification or the edification of the body, but for edification for each of us individually, personally, privately. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to who? Men, but to God, for no one understands. It's an unintelligible language. But in his spirit, he is speaking mysteries. 
But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and uh, consolation. One who speaks in a tongue does what? He edifies himself. That is the purpose of that tongue. He is not dismissing its value. He's not diminishing his value. He's not pitting one against the other. But he is suggesting that within the context of a public assembly, um, uh, prophecy is a superior gift to tongues within that context because prophecy has the ability to edify the body. But in our own private devotional life, tongues enjoys the capacity to edify us, to build us up. Verse 5, now I wish that you all spoke with tongues. And I've said, this is not poetic license. He's not simply saying flippantly, well, I wish everyone spoke with tongues. He's, he is communicating a desire. I want all of you to speak with tongues, but within the context of the, the uh, public assembly, what? But even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now remember, he said, I will, to be filled with the Spirit, one of the first things we would do is to Speak to ourselves in psalms and hymns and what? Spiritual songs or songs uh, of the Spirit. Let's skip ahead here real quickly to uh, verse... um, Let's start with verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit or I will sing with the mind also. Context determines the, um, the use of this gift, doesn't it? If it is used in a public assembly, it must be accompanied by tongues or it is not to be exercised. In our private lives, that is not necessary. Paul said, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with my mind or pray with my understanding. That's a very important distinction. But nowhere does Paul diminish its value. In fact, interestingly enough, he said, concerning the one who in a public assembly is speaking in another tongue without interpretation, he said, truly he gives thanks well and he's personally edified and yet he is clearly out of order. Suggesting that what he is doing is indeed spiritual, is indeed personally edifying and gives thanks well, but it is out of place, so it is not led by the Holy Spirit. Which also underscores this important truth, it is volitional. It wasn't some unction they were waiting for, it's entirely volitional. This person isn't being led by the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit hasn't given them an unction to do that. And yet, here they're doing it, and Paul said, you've given thanks well. And you're personally edified. Okay, so now we, we'll go ahead and close with Jude 20. I'm going to ask a couple of you to hand these out, please. I read this to you a couple of weeks ago. Would you hand these out? I'm out of time. Hand them out over here, please. Huh? Yeah, well, as many as will go around. Uh, Susie uh, particularly enjoyed this, and she suggested that it would be helpful if, th- if you were able to have this in writing. As, as that's being passed out, turn with me to Jude 20, please. 
That is the uh, book immediately preceding the book of Revelation. It's one chapter only. Jude 20. Now this handout, you'll recall I read to you uh, <clears throat> a section from the Pillar New Testament commentary, which is one of the leading commentaries available today. It's excellent. It's a little price. It's about $500 if you want to buy it. But it's an excellent resource, and it reflects the latest scholarship. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource, and, and quite mainstream. And I, and I wanted you to have this in your hand so that you would understand and have confidence. This is not a, the opinion of a fringe. This is mainstream thought. Um, we'll talk more about that, uh, uh, not this coming Thursday, but the following Thursday. Um, as we look at some of the um, more contemporary outpourings that have occurred over the last 75 years. Uh, Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, doing what? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul said, when I pray in an unknown tongue, thank you, Don. When I pray in an unknown tongue, thank you, Miriam, my spirit prays right? And he said, we are built up or edified as we pray in another tongue. Jude is urging the church. Apostasy is rampant. False teachers have, uh, 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 the church here has been exposed to false teachers. They are wiggling their way into the church. And Jude is concerned that these men and women build themselves up on their most holy faith, that the gospel first preached to them be protected and built upon. Now, Paul would say it like this in Ephesians 3. He would say that, Jesus, that they would be rooted, uh, or that Jesus Christ would abide in their heart by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. And when he discusses that in Ephesians 3, he's talking about uh, a, a process that occurs as we are built up by His Holy Spirit in our reborn human spirit. That we are strengthened with might by His Spirit in our spirit. And that we would receive a revelation, knowledge that passes knowledge, or surpasses knowledge, which suggests an encounter, an experience, a revelation that occurs through the personal work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jude is urging them toward. You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. He is suggesting that here is a mechanism which can trigger the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to the degree that Jesus Christ, the invisible God in His kingdom, becomes more real to you and so more permanent in your heart and unshaken even in the face of false teaching. By praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll, uh, you know, you have this and you know how to read, correct? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take any more of your time this evening. Take this with you and read. This, is, uh, this, is, this portion of the New Test Pillar New Testament commentary is written by uh, Dr. Davids, who is a New Testament scholar. He's also a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, which is unusual in, in some of these commentaries, but uh, he penned the one uh, the commentary for Jude and Second Peter. But he specifically states, and this is mainstream thought once again, that this is referring this praying in the Holy Spirit is referring specifically to glossolalia. 
to prayer in other uh, other tongues, unintelligible languages, or uh, as he says here, um, uh, let's see. Well, you'll find it at any rate. He refers to it. He has another reference to uh, unintelligible tongues. But again, this is this is mainstream Christian thought. This isn't. Uh, I'm not coming to you from the hollers of Kentucky and sharing with you the thoughts of a sect. <laughs> uh oh, or West Virginia. Um, I want to give you uh, enough uh, enough evidence to weigh this out for yourselves, to begin really thinking through this constructively and objectively, uh, and, and making some choices. Now, this may be something you, you may, well, I believe this, Larry. This is part of my life. Uh, for others, it may, this may still be an unsettled question. You've been circulating around the edges and uh, wondering about this matter. So I, I hope this provides an opportunity for you to sort through this uh, a little more definitely, and, and uh, you may find an opportunity to enter more fully in, into this experience. Father, I ask you for uh, discernment and discretion in these matters. I pray that as we, we uh, approach us with an open heart and an open mind, that you would, you would make the truth of the matter obvious to each of us, Lord. Uh, and where our own theology perhaps needs to be changed to accommodate truth, we would each, uh, each of us gathered here, myself included, we would each uh, have a willing heart before you to do that. Um, we ask you for understanding concerning the truths we've heard tonight. And I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon those who have uh, sacrificed their time tonight and, and joined together to hear your word and to join together in prayer that you continue with them as they go, give them a safe journey home, and I pray your blessing uh, upon, upon us all. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.